Welcome to Mountaintop Conversations with Allison Felix. I'm Wes Felix, co-founder of Sage and co-host of this show with Allison. On Mountaintop Conversations, we celebrate the stories and experiences of leaders across politics, entrepreneurship, and culture. Each guest has scaled their own personal mountaintop and hopes to light the path for others to scale new heights themselves. Today, we're talking to Lynn Martin, who is an absolute powerhouse in the world of finance. She's the president of NYSE Group, which includes the New York Stock Exchange, you've probably heard of it, the biggest stock market in the world. Lynn is also the chair of fixed income and data services at Intercontinental Exchange, which basically means she's in charge of all sorts of important things like securities pricing, indices, and connectivity services across all major asset classes. So needless to say, she's got a lot on her plate, and we can't wait to hear more about her journey and insights into the world of finance. We're incredibly excited to come to you live from the New York Stock Exchange with Lynn Martin. This is obviously really, really special. Um, It's so special to have you all here, too. So Allison and I host a podcast called Mountaintop Conversations, and this is a a live recording of that. Um, So we'll do it a little bit different than how the podcast works, but um, hopefully it'll be fun. You guys will get, like, good stuff out of it. And then at the end, we'll open it up for Q&A, too. But I thought it would be really cool before we get into the story to your story, Lynn, and just kind of the impact you've had on us and on, on the world um, to just tell the story of Seish a little bit. I know a lot of you are family, but some of you are new and may not know what we do. Um, what we do isn't quite as important as why we do it. So um, I'll throw it to my little sister over here to, to start telling people a little bit about our why. Yeah. So, This all started um, when I felt like I had accomplished a lot of the goals I had set out. I had, you know, had the medals, had a lot of the times that I wanted to run. And I got to this place where I was like, I don't have really what matters most to me. And I had always wanted to be a mother and I had felt like I had really pushed it off for a long time. And I think it was really interesting why I felt like that. I don't think that anyone ever like sat me down at some point and was like, you can't have kids until you've done X, Y, and Z. But I think it was really what I saw. Um, I had not seen a woman in my sport celebrated who was, you know, doing well in the track and as a mother and, you know, really living that life together. But what I had seen were my friends and my teammates struggle through motherhood. I saw them have their contracts paused. I saw them hide pregnancy so that they secure, could secure new contracts and just have a really difficult time. And it had nothing to do with their capabilities because they absolutely could do that but they didn't have the support. And that's what I witnessed behind the scenes. And so when I came to a place where I was ready to start my family, I had a lot of fear. And I wasn't sure if I, if that would mean that my career was going to be over. But I decided to, to move forward with that desire. Um, and even before I disclosed my pregnancy, um, I was offered a contract that was 70% less than what I had previously been making. And I had been with Nike for almost a decade at this point. And so that amplified my fear. Um, 
for it to start off so bad, even before they knew I was pregnant, I just, I, I didn't know what to do, but I hid my pregnancy like so many women before me did. Um, I continued to train. I trained at 4 a.m. when it was still dark outside so that nobody could see, um, could see me pregnant. And I, I just kind of went forward that way. Eventually, I decided to really turn my fight from one around money to asking for maternal protections. And so what that means basically is a track and field contract is performance-based. So you go to the Olympics or World Championships, you get a medal, you get a, a bonus. But if you go, you don't, you get a reduction. So what was happening um, was that women who were pregnant, they had no protection. They were being reduced. Their salary was being cut to the point where they were being pushed out of the sport. And I just felt like that wasn't okay. So I asked for these maternal protections and I was told that I could have them. And so I was like, okay, this is amazing. That's exactly what I asked for. But when I got the contract back, there was no mention of maternity, of leave, of anything of that nature. And so what I learned was that they weren't willing to offer this to all female athletes. It was just me. And I think in becoming a mother and having a, a daughter, particularly, um, and thinking about the world that she was going to grow up in, it was just something that I couldn't stand by for. And so um, Wes and I wrote a New York Times op-ed um, sharing that and, and sharing our truth. And it was a couple weeks later that Nike and other companies actually did change their policy. And that was incredible. But I knew that I still wanted to run in the Olympics. Um, I, I still felt capable. I still felt like I could do it. And so I was having a conversation with Wes and I was really just kind of venting to him and just telling him how tired I was. I mean, at this point I had been to four Olympics and um, I felt like I had done all the things, but I didn't have a footwear sponsor. And so he kind of looked at me and he was like, well, yeah, we should just do this ourselves. And I was like, Okay, that seems like pretty big, um, like build a company, build shoes. And um, the more that I sat with it, I understood what he was saying. He was saying that this was an opportunity for us to be the ones to create that change instead of relying on somebody else to do it. And so we created Seish and we are a footwear brand for and by women. And what we thought we were doing was creating shoes so that I could wear them in the Olympics. Um, but what we learned is that shoes have not been made for women. So a tennis shoe is made off of a mold of a foot. And it's been the mold of a man's foot used to make women's footwear. And so at Seish, we don't do that. Our shoes are specifically designed to fit the form of a female foot. And um, we, we think that we're just way more than a shoe company. We think that women deserve better in every aspect of life. And um, we wake up to get to do that every single day. So that's our, that's our spiel. <laughs> She asked me if I wanted to tell the story with her. Were we going to do it together? <laughs> Should she do it? And I was like, no, I think you got it. And you've got it. Okay. Like, you've, you've really got it. Um, okay, so today for this conversation, we get to talk with Lynn Martin. Um, and Lynn Martin, I was thinking, like, this is like, I know you didn't build this, but, like, this, no. this is you, you know? like, And to have a woman lead this, that trading room floor, um, it's really, it's unbelievable and it's incredible. Um, and I think a lot of what I hope we get to talk a little bit about today is, is how did you get here? Um, what's it like being here? How do we create a world where, where more women 
aspire to be here and actually are able to make it. Um, that's what we want to get into um, and talk through with you guys. So how did you get your start at the New York Stock Exchange? So when I started my career, I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I started my career as a programmer. I was a coder. So I have a degree in computer science. Uh, I was attracted to the exchange industry because I sort of got the financial bug when I was studying, when I was finishing up college. Um, so I went and got a master's degree in finance. But I, this is the turn of the centuries, dot-com era. Like, I did never thought that I would have this role when I took that job. Um, it was more while I was progressing my career that I just worked really hard. I kept my head down and I kept giving opportunities. Um, and I also wasn't afraid. I kept my head down but put my hand up. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like really focused on getting the job done, doing it well. But then when there was another opportunity, I'd volunteer for it. Um, but as you point out, this is not exactly a typically female position to have. In fact, five years ago, uh, next month was the, the time that we named our first female president. We were 226 years old as an institution then, and the first woman to lead it was a woman who preceded me named Stacy Cunningham, and she was named in 2018. I was offered the position in 2021. I took the job and um, I started the job in 2022, early 2022. Um, it's been a lot of fun, but I would say the biggest compliment anyone's given me thus far was when during Stacy's tenure, it was all about you're the first female, you're the first female. I feel like every question was you're the first female started with that sentence. Uh, my comms team's in the back. And as I always say to them, there was maybe like the second month I was in the seat, I went on CNBC and they're like, oh, they're going to talk, ask you about Women's History Month and ESG and diversity and all that. None of it. They just asked me about the markets. They asked me about trading. They asked me about what I'm seeing. To me, that was the biggest compliment because it was like, okay, I don't care if you're a guy, a girl. I don't care what you are. I just want your expertise. So that's, in my mind, it felt like, okay, maybe the world has now just accepted that a female can have this job as opposed to it just being traditionally male. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. So you were saying there, head down, hand up. Yeah. Um, where does that where does that come from? Who are you? Where are you from? <laughs> like how did you how did you get to this place? Of, what every woman you meet isn't a coder by not, trade. Not and every woman have a master's I meet, degree but... in math, you know. Hey. Uh, um, but yeah, where are you from? Start us from the beginning. So head down, hand up kinda comes, I guess, from my parents and my grandmother. My dad was raised by a single mother. Um, and I think that really instilled in him that he had to work hard. A single woman who was struggling to make ends meet. Um, he raised me 
showing alongside my mother. He raised me showing me that you work hard, you get recognized. He retired at, at 70 and he worked six days a week until he was 70. Um, and he did it in a quiet fashion. He wouldn't like boast about his stuff. He just wasn't, he was just happy that he wasn't living the way he was brought up. We were a middle-class family. He was able to afford luxuries. He was able to afford, you know, your, the necessities. He was able to afford good schools for me, you know, all that sort of stuff. Say that's probably the head downside. The hand upside was one day I remember coming home telling my mom what I wanted to be when I was, when I grew up. My mom was a stay at home mom. And I don't remember what it was that I said I wanted to do, but evidently I said, but women don't do that job. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, who told you that women can't do that job? And I don't remember. I think someone in school said, yeah, well, that's not traditionally a woman's, a woman's job. And she said, I don't care. I don't want you to ever listen to someone say that to you again, because you're going to do that, that job better than that person, if it's a guy or a girl. So I don't ever want you to have that in the back of your head that you can't do a job. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I think it fascinates me. There's so much of your story that fascinates me, but thinking about you know, how you started and how it's evolved. And I was going to ask you something about like, where did that confidence come from? But it sounds like at home, like you were built up that way. I was built up to just believe in myself that I could do stuff, but I'm someone who believes I can do stuff, but second guesses myself all the time. Like when, when there's always this thing about imposter syndrome and that whole concept and, you know, there's plenty of times in my career that I've said no to jobs. I always tell women to not do that now because I've said no to various opportunities because when asked why, I'll say, because I don't know that I can do the job. But I've had mentors say to me, I wouldn't have asked you to do the job if I didn't think you could do the job. Duh. So that's more like the light bulb moment that I just keep in the back of my head when I'm asked, you know, when I'm given an opportunity to say, now I just say yes to opportunities as opposed to having that nagging voice in the back of my head. Yeah. I think it's really refreshing to know that you as the president of the New York Stock Exchange experience that as well. I think it's something. I second guess myself all the time. But I think, and, and I think I do that because I want to do a good job. Mm-hmm. And I think anyone who cares so deeply about their job and what they do and the way they present themselves and the way they represent an institution, I think that's really healthy because it just shows how much you care. And I'll take 10 people who care any day over the week, any day of the week over someone who thinks, no, I got this, I'm fine. Yeah. 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 yeah it's so interesting when you're saying that you care to do a good job, but that doesn't sound like you're afraid to fail. Are you afraid to fail or is it more this desire? To I would do good? say I am afraid to fail, but no, I'm going to fail. Mm. And every Except time I fail, I learn something from that failure and I push my team to try new things 
and fail because they're really interesting data points yeah. where you try something, you fail, you're gonna try something again and you're not gonna fail because it's gonna be informed by why you failed on the first thing. I feel like for me, it took a really long time to grasp that. And it takes a long like, time to grasp yeah, that. Yeah, but once you get it, I feel like there's something yeah. special that just kind of like goes off. I guess I'm curious, were there people who helped you figure that out? Did you have mentors along the way that I, I think something that really strikes me about you is like extending that hand to the next person and you've been so just transparent and open and, and wanting to help. And so I'm curious if you had that on this journey. Yeah, I mean, I think just the fact that I've been offered such amazing opportunities throughout my career and um, I, by virtue of that, I feel like I've been offered um, various, I've just been lucky in some respects. I feel like someone has always put their, has put their hand out to pull me up for lack of a better description. Yeah. Um, I equate it to luck. Some people equate it to other things, but you know, I mean, there, there's a mix of hard work and luck that goes into, into all those things. But I feel like, especially as I've progressed in my career, I feel like a big part of it now that once you achieve a certain level, like you got to get the next generation. You got you got you got to see what else is out there. You got to see how you bring people along with you mm -hmm. in the journey because you're not going to have the success or the opportunity that you have right now forever. I mean, I won't be president of the New York Stock Exchange forever. Um, so for me, it's also important about finding okay, well, who's going after me, and while I'm here, what can I do to make a difference and elevate our platform and bring in the types of people we want to do business with and put a spotlight on. Because the spotlight, I think what a lot of people don't realize is the spotlight isn't just for one person. Yeah, You really need to shine that on, you need to use that opportunity to shine it on everyone around you. Yeah, I feel like in my career, that has been something that, that concept of like, only one person can win. I don't know like where we got that from, but I think that there's been really a shift, at least that I've seen lately of just, whether it's women supporting women or mm. helping that next person up, opening that door. Um, it's just something that we have to do. That's the, the idea that, like you said, that the spotlight is only gonna shine on one person. It's, it's just so outdated and, and yeah. misinformed. And I yeah. feel like, um, yeah, we have to do away with that. And it's also, you know, do you want it to only shine on one person? Even if that one person is you, do you want the spotlight all the time? Like, no. exhausting, heavy. Yeah. Hot, you know, like, I think of you and just how you've helped me and Allison and even, like, allowed this whole conversation to happen. Um, but I think of other people in the room, like, you know, like Simone, who, like, I feel like really is another female founder who, like, pulls other people mm -hmm. along in the journey. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful momentum that I feel is building, but we're getting off track. So you were a coder. <laughs> you were a coder. Yeah. And then... How... I didn't have a coding personality. Oh. 
you liked people yeah. too much. <laughs> As it turns out, you enjoyed... sitting behind a computer, the computer doesn't talk back to you. Yeah. Well, now other than to validate, well, yes, there wasn't ChatGPT in 1998. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. But yeah. Okay. So you're you're there, and then you decided you're going to go pursue your master's in finance. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you were saying that that was kind of coming on the back of some of the things you le- you learned while coding. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, so you get your master's in finance, and then what? What came next after that? So I graduated with my master's in statistics, actually, because okay. um, I'm a I'm a nerd, <laughs> um, and. I started interviewing when I was almost done with my master's um, because I was really, I wanted to go into trading, mm. I thought, because mm-hmm. I don't know, like finance. Okay, what is, I feel like yeah. a kid, right? Yeah. Like, okay, well, what's finance? Okay, there's traders. I'll do that. Yeah. Um, and then I got offered an opportunity um, with a company that was acquired by NYSE. Um, who was going through a floor to screen migration. So they, they had a trading floor. The market had moved electronics. So they were in the process. They were based in London. They were in the process of closing their trading floor and moving to electronic okay. matching engine. Um, and they needed someone who could kind of talk about the products, but they really needed someone to talk to programmers mm. about how to connect mm. to their platform. So... Again, it was just a really lucky moment. I applied on monster.com. I, I mean, I'm totally so dating good. myself. So good. Um, for those of you who have no idea what that is, that was the thing before the thing before the thing that's now Indeed, I guess, um, or LinkedIn. Um, so I sent a resume, and then they called me, and I accepted the opportunity, and I was a basket of nerves for probably... The first couple of years yeah. that I worked there, not because anyone was mean, but it was just different. It was just a really different. I had completely switched careers um, going from writing code to having to talk to people, even though I wanted to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole reason I did it. Um, and, you know, moving to talking to programmers and traders, which were a little bit a little bit different back in 2001. Yeah, yeah. They looked a little different. Well, I guess the question would be, did you did you see many women? No. Did you see any women? I mean, I'm sure. No, on the trading desk, no. not, not really. I saw some starting to emerge on the sales side. So not the ones that were actually doing the buying and the selling, but the ones that were out talking to mm. clients. But still, it was predominantly men. But I was kind of used to that because yeah. I was... In the tech side, I worked for IBM, and that was a lot of What did men. that, I mean... It's a lot of men, too. What did it... And computers. What did it feel like? <laughs> Even though you were used to it, what did it, what did it feel like? Um, it taught me to... Well, I mean, it's obviously intimidating a bit, um, but it taught me how to communicate with a lot of data and a lot of information mm. to back up the mm. points that mm. I was making. Like I would have, I'd be very purposeful when I would object to something or disagree with something. And I would have, you know, a very data-driven 
case as to why I disagreed yeah. with something. Yeah. It was like you needed to really. I had to have backup. You had to have, yeah. had yeah, to have backup. You had to have receipts. Yeah. You had to give the receipts yeah. or whatever 100%. it was that you were saying. 100%. Yeah. Did you feel that at all in your career at all, Allison? Like, I know you were competing against women, but I think still, and maybe it's more so in your your second act in this like new place um, where you're seeing yourself as one of the few women in a lot of the rooms that you're in. Um, yeah, what does that feel like for yeah. you? I think I think where I felt it most, I think as a, a as an Olympian, you feel like, especially as a, a female athlete, it's like not only do you have to be extraordinary at what you do, but there was also this level of like, it matters what you look like. And hmm. I think that when I think of like my male counterparts, like nobody cared what they looked like, you know, to to break through, you didn't, that wasn't a factor. And so I think that was probably one of the things that I struggled with most of like, you know, why is it not enough that I'm just good? You know, why do I have to kind of go this extra step? And I think now transitioning um, into like the business world, I think that I've seen so many incredible women, you know, whether it's, you know, what you're doing here. So there's so much representation now. And I feel also it's really refreshing because people are willing to help. And I think in the sports world, it, it didn't always feel like that. It was what we talked yeah. about before, like this idea that there could only be one. I'm not sharing any of what has made me successful. Um, whereas now I feel like, wow, there's like this community that actually I can tap into and they, they care and they want me to win as well. And I think it's that idea of a win like for another woman for a sister of mine is also a win of my own. Mm -hmm. That's how I mm -hmm. view it. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Um, okay. So getting back a little bit to, to your career and journey, um, how did you, how did you really get here in this seat? What was, what were those kind of steps? Yeah. So I ultimately wound up becoming part of a an entity that was a startup. It was a hybrid between NYSE owned 51% of it and Variety of Partners owned 49% of it. I was COO, then became CEO of that. And then this company came along from Atlanta called ICE, which decided to buy the New York Stock Exchange um, ten, almost 10 years ago. And I got to know the founder of that company um, pretty well. And they, ICE is a company that is very focused on culture and finding cultural fits, like people that work hard, think entrepreneurially, think outside the box, um, work collaboratively. And as I got to know him, he's like, okay, we want you to stay, even though we're going to dismantle your business and merge it into other businesses. Um, so I, he asked me ultimately to start up our tech and data business, which I did for seven years. And then in the summer of 2021, he said, hey, you did a great job. Now I want you to go run New York Stock Exchange. I'm like, what, what about the data business that we've just built for the last seven years? And he said, no, you'd still be involved in that, you know. Um, but, but given how companies have evolved so much, where every company is a tech company, every company has a data mm -hmm. strategy, you'd be a great fit for this role. So I wasn't afraid to say yes. Do you feel like a great fit for it? 
Well, you know, there's been there's been one or two things that have happened in the market since I took the role. So <laughs> that that's for sure. Uh, you know, there's this thing called inflation. There's war in the Ukraine. There's challenges with a bunch of banks. Um, well, actually, you know, you know there's not much going on in the market. So. Even, even a step back, maybe. What what does the president of the New York Stock Exchange do? Uh, it's kind of. There's sort of three different jobs. Job number one, you're talking to your listed companies, the companies who have listed their stock on us. Um, and then you're talking to startup companies about, here's why you want to list on the New York Stock Exchange someday, and here's all the things that you got to think about as you're in the run-up to that. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that, um, both with our community and then with the companies that are before the IPO. And then. The other business at the New York Stock Exchange is it's trading. Like there's buys and sells that go on every day. And given all the volatility in the markets and given my tech background, I'm really focused on making sure our electronic systems have enough capacity to deal with all the messaging that's going through our platform, which is up 20% over the pandemic levels. So all of that kind of stuff. And then third, and really unique to the New York Stock Exchange, we have a very interesting platform that we're building, we're continuing to build out and elevate platform being things from education, educating folks on the market, educating folks on being a public company, but also talking to various folks in DC about regulation that they're thinking of imposing on either the trading or the listing side of the business, talking to policymakers about various tensions geopolitically. So there's a platform aspect um, that also takes up a fair bit of time. Okay, so that's what you do. Why do you do it? What's your why? I do it because I think I think this is the greatest institution. I know this is the greatest institution in the world. I know this is the greatest platform in the world. I know it's the platform that can make a difference in this mm -hmm. world. That's really what drives me and what excites me about this job. And that if we use our platform the way we believe we should, mm -hmm. we're gonna make a big difference in the world. That's really cool. Yeah. I know that you are such a representation also. I, I just think about my daughter growing up and you know that she gets to see these amazing female leaders. And I guess I'm just curious of the advice that you have for women coming up now um, of how, like, I feel like the finance, at least speaking for myself, mm. the finance industry is just, it's intimidating. And what would you say to that young person? Don't be intimidated. Um, you know what I love? So I've got two kids. They're both boys. Um, what I love pointing out is when I was a girl, you there weren't courses that were focused on getting girls interested in things like finance, things like coding, things that are, that are non-traditional female roles. Now I see through my boys that there are, you know, girls' STEM classes where the girl is building a doll as a robot as opposed to a car as a robot. You know, there, mm -hmm. that it feels like the world is trying to yeah. show women, not just show women because there have been women that have been successful athletes, business, political, media, whatever the case may be, but also get girls interested in stuff and makes it less scary if you're teaching towards your daughter 
in the way that she can understand as opposed to teaching towards my son in a way that mm. he can stand, yeah. understand. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I do feel like there's been a huge shift um, of, yeah, how we teach our kids and what yeah. we gear them towards. Okay, you guys are talking about being mothers. Um, I have no children, but I do. My little niece is the best. Um, <laughs> Not that you're biased. Yeah, no, like, she's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, she just got a new hairstyle I'm particularly <laughs> fond of. But um, <laughs> I, I talk with Allison a lot about how do you try to, like, balance it all. And I look and I, and I tell her, I'm like, you're just, you have to slow down. You're doing too much. You know, you're trying to like make the flight and still be there for drop off and pick up. And, you know, I think like a couple of weeks ago we were, she was doing, oh, it was the women's NCAA final four. And, um, and she was doing an appearance there. And then she's on the plane at like four o'clock in the morning. And I was like, what, what's going on? She was like, oh no, she has soccer. And I was like, oh, is it, she has like a soccer game. She's like, now it's her first practice. And I'm like, oh, okay, well. It's a big deal. All right. like, so we talk a lot about balance, but we talk about it as more like older brother, younger sister, older brother who has no clue what he's talking about because I have zero balance in my life and I also don't have a family, but I just worry about her. Yeah. So how do you think about balance? My it, mom worries about me too. Yeah. I don't have a brother. Your, yeah, your mom, <laughs> my mom and I, worries your mom about and I will me start too. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> um, I do the okay. I have to take a red eye mm-hmm. home from the mm-hmm. West Coast because to not miss something. Yeah. Although I've given up on practices. Okay, um, I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> that will come. I, I've given up on that. I've also given up on games. Some oh, games too. Okay. So. You get you, you okay. get there eventually. You I get imagine. there eventually. Um, I think the idea that you can do it all is one of the most dangerous ideas mm. that is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, because for whatever reason, has women thinking, okay, I can go to everything for my kids. I can do everything for my job. I could be a good partner to my spouse. And I'll do everything perfectly and nothing's going to fall through the cracks. And I'm also going to sleep and I'm also going to (laughs) not be sick all the time and all that stuff. And I think it's a really dangerous idea because it's not physically possible. Um, So I don't do everything perfect. I try to be very intentional with the time I spend with my kids. Like I spend a lot of time with my kids on weekends for example, um, which as the kids get older, they understand. My 11-year-old gets it. He's totally good because um, I travel so much. My 8-year-old totally doesn't get it, so he cries. And you get the big tears and you get the, well, you mean you can't be there for diorama day? And, you know, you just, <laughs> you, you, figure, you figure it out because mm-hmm. you, you figure out ways to integrate into their life yeah. Um, I think the most important thing you can do with kids is just make sure they know they can always talk to you yeah. about anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's way more important to me than making every baseball game, which if you go to every soccer game or every baseball <laughs> game, 
Trust me, yes. you'll be bored as hell. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I say soccer, but it's like soccer at yeah. this point. Uh, yeah. But it really sticks out to me when you say be intentional with yeah. your time, yeah. um, because I think that's so important, that being present. And I'm definitely in the figuring it out phase. Yeah. I don't know how well, your long it took young. you. Yeah, she's four. And so we are definitely figuring it out and, you know, getting our, our bearings with everything. But I think, is that something that you came to understand? Like, did you have to go through it all I falling physically, apart? Yeah, I physically yeah. had to, like, I physically was unable to do my job yeah. and be at everything yeah. just because of the travel demands. Like at some point, it's just the way your life evolves mm -hmm. and eventually you, you, you figure out how to integrate into, yeah. your, like into, your, into your kids' lives. Because when they're 11, still wants to spend time with mom, but <laughs> he's now starting the I want to spend time with my friends more. So yeah. you got to figure out the next chapter as to, okay, well, how do I make sure that I'm still involved in his life when he wants to go every Friday with his friends to town for pizza yeah. and not hang out with me, yeah. which is totally fine. Yeah. I don't want him to hang out with me because then when he's 25, I don't want to spend every Friday. <laughs> I want to spend some Fridays with him maybe, but, you know, yeah. there's other like, things to do. You don't, you don't sound like you carry a guilt I 100% have mom guilt. I got mom yeah. guilt all the time. How do you how do you reconcile it? Like what do you what do you do with it or do you just sit in it and deal with it? You sit in it and deal sit with in it. And deal with it. Yeah. yeah. And then just keep on coming back. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that also, you know, there's there's like conversations I'll have with with friends who do have families and um, especially with female friends and I'll kind of ask them like if your husband treated you or treated the way that your husband's treating you, if your son mm. treated a woman that way and mm -hmm. you watched it, like, mm -hmm. how would you feel? You know, and this idea that sometimes we think we're, we might be a bad example, mm. you know? And mm -hmm. I, I think like your son, the 11 year old and the eight year old will look, and I think he's probably one day gonna bring home a partner who like shows up in all the ways mm. and isn't perfect and feels the range of emotions because that's what you're modeling mm -hmm. for them, you know? And, and I, hopefully I think my sons see, which I think they do. My husband's super supportive. I couldn't do this. Mm. I couldn't mm -hmm. be me without my husband. Um, he's got a job, he works, and he, um, he does a lot. He does yeah. a lot of parenting. Yeah. Yeah. But because he's such a great dad, I'm hoping that my sons see a marriage is a partnership. Yeah. The wife can go to work. The wife can stay at home. But the dad's got to show up too. Mm -hmm. Like both parents mm -hmm. actually have to show up. Yeah. Yeah. It's not It's not one person shows right. up. The other one does whatever the other thing is. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, if you were talking to a woman, a young woman out there who looks at you, you know, is inspired by you, wants to emulate your career and say, one day I also want to be the president of New York Stock Exchange. Um, what would you tell her about her journey? Uh, it's going to have a tremendous amount of twists and turns, and you're going to have a nonlinear path and just keep following the path and most importantly, stay true to yourself. Yeah. I love that. I think that makes me think a lot of you, Allison. Like, you know, we're 
sitting in this amazing boardroom recording a podcast that we're hosting and you have like a shoe that you built on your foot. It's, how did you get here? Like, it feels very <laughs> nonlinear yeah. too. Like, yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. how did you, how did you get here? And what do you feel sitting here? And I think like, what would you tell a young woman who's sitting, wants to sit in your seat one day, maybe minus the 31 medals and all that stuff? <laughs> I think <laughs> you probably have to tell her like, get different parents, have a really great older brother who never let you never win, let me anything. win in anything. Yes, of course. <laughs> I think I would say to be open. Um, I think maybe similar to you, Lynn, I, this was not the plan. Like, this is not like what I was like, okay, I want to do X, Y, and Z, and this is how I'm going to accomplish it. I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. And so I think it's just staying open to where life takes you. And for me, I think it had been, it really was about pursuing passion. And then I think that passion led to purpose. But I started out with doing something that I loved and that I was good at. And eventually it brought me to a, a bigger understanding. Because I think for a long time, I thought my purpose was running fast and getting medals. And like, that's why I was here. Um, and then I realized like, no, it's, it's much bigger than that. And so I would say to any young person, you know, at the beginning of their journey, um, to be open to where it can take you, you know, lean into those passion points. Um, but when you find that purpose, when you find that thing that you feel like you can have impact in, you know, be there, be present and, and really make a change when you can. Yeah, I feel like we talk about that a lot, that like your passion will lead to your purpose. And if you just take one step towards your passion, you will end up eventually in your purpose. Um, but then like, how do you know what your passion is? You know, and, and when we talk about it, it's if you could do anything in the world right now, what would you do? And it's not like a job. It's like, what would literally the thing be that you would do and move towards it? You don't have to like run out and do it. But like, move towards it, think about it, you know, and, and think about why do you want to do it? Cause it's going to show you so much. I think for you, you were passionate about running, but I think you could break that down. And was it the actual feeling of running? Was it the feeling of winning? Was it the feeling of accomplishment? But whatever it was in there, you, you ran towards it. And then all of a sudden there were like young girls somewhere that were asking to take their picture with you and saying they wanted to be like you. And all of a sudden, there you are in your purpose. And it all started, you know, wearing like weird basketball shoes, trying to run down a track somewhere, you know? So, um, well, Lynn, we call this mountaintop conversations. And this is the, the last question for you of where we really want to understand a mountaintop moment for you. When we first started asking this question, it was kind of, you know, what is your mountaintop moment? And we've heard such beautiful answers where people say, you know, we were sitting with Secretary Hillary Clinton and she said um, it was being a grandma. And, you know, I think Allison and I both like got off the recording and said like, she just say being a grandma was her? Like all women can be grandmothers kinda, you know, like that's not, huh, like that's crazy, you know, like, and you realize that the things that some of the most successful people in the world, the things that are most important to them, are things that we all get to experience. Um, and even if it is something that, you know, maybe you won't be the president of the New York Stock Exchange one day, it's still 
the why is something that we all get to experience. So for you, what is, what's been a mountaintop moment um, in your life? I'm not trying to steal Hillary's answer. I'm not a grandma. Um, <laughs> obviously having my kids yeah. is one because it was kind of unexpected. Um, unexpected at the rush of emotion you get when you have your, your, particularly your first child. Um, I would also say um, being offered various roles throughout mm-hmm. my career. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's just been so many different, I feel like I, I've had a few mountaintop moments here already, either when we hosted President Zelensky right after Labor Day, virtually, who gave an address from our podium, who had five ministers of his fly over from the Ukraine, took 24 hours to get out of the Ukraine, to come to the US, to meet with people, to encourage investment in their war-torn country. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those days where you just sit there and you're like, wow, that just happened. Yeah. And why, it goes back to your why, yeah. right? I mean, and why did he want people to invest in his country? Because like- He wants freedom. They're fighting for their lives, yeah. right? And, and yeah. it like all comes back to how important the work is that you And how do. important the platform yeah. that we have what is. it really does. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, we end all of our podcast with a few rapid fire questions. Okay. So one word to describe crypto. <sighs> That's the hardest one, I promise. Regulation. Your guilty TV pleasure. Oh, Netflix. Mm-hmm. But do I have my supposed to answer all these with one word? No, you can answer oh. whatever you want. I love this to binge house. series on Netflix on yeah. weekends. Like I always, many weekends I'll find a series that... That what, I'm what's your latest series? <laughs> oh, I know. Okay, you don't have to say it. I know what it is. Though. <laughs> it's Actually, season, one of, it's season two, right? Uh, one of the one of the ones I recently binged was Drive to Survive, which oh. I found incredibly fascinating. So good. Which was yeah. the the Formula One. Yeah. You should try beef. Yeah. Beef. Oh, I haven't done that. Really looks good like one. there's a couple of recommendations yeah. for that. Okay, on a hard day. Mm. What's your go-to fantasy job? On a really hard day? Really tough day. Yoga teacher. Oh, such a good one. (laughs) It kind of puts me back in the... (laughs) Yeah. All right. Take a breath. So good. Yeah. Take a breath. Okay, last one. And I said the first one was the hardest, but I don't know. But best Wall Street movie. (sighs) Oh, brother. Best Wall Street movie. Uh, I would say, I'm going to say Trading Places because, because Frozen Concentrated Orange Juice is one of our contracts at ICE. Oh, that is <laughs> and amazing. They, and they filmed it at Nybot, which... Um, our parent company acquired Nibon. That's amazing. Pretty perfect. <laughs> Beekman. Yeah, that's so great. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Thank you for talking. Thank with you. Us. Thank yeah. you. <laughs>
Thank you to all of you for spending time with us this week. We hope that as you scale your own mountaintop, you take time to reflect on the lessons you're learning and the opportunities you'll have to inspire others.